Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, the show's currently on break until the new year, but we've got plenty of classic episodes to tide you over. Enjoy this trip through the show's own history, and I'll see you back here on January 2nd with a batch of brand new episodes. See you in the new year. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hi, this is Holly Fry. I am sitting in for Tracy V. Wilson this week. It's December 23rd. And on this day in 1954, the first successful living donor kidney transplantation was completed. 23-year-old Richard Herrick, freshly discharged from the Coast Guard, was diagnosed with serious kidney inflammation called chronic nephritis on October 26th of 1954. He was referred to Peter Bent Brigham Hospital and Harvard Medical School where a team led by surgeon and professor Joseph Murray and Dr. John Merrill had been working on the idea of kidney transplants. Medically, Richard Herrick was a very good candidate for transplant because he had an identical twin brother who had two healthy kidneys. Behaviorally, it was a slightly different story. Richard was a difficult patient. There was concern that he might not be the right fit for this kind of surgery. But a psychiatrist named Dr. E.M. Kuderuskas evaluated Richard's behavior, and he actually came to the conclusion that the patient was exhibiting signs of toxic psychosis. Basically, Richard's infection and the toxic agents in his body were causing all of that bad behavior. So they decided that they would go forward. And the team also had to be very sensitive to the psychological ramifications of asking a healthy man, his brother, to give up one of his kidneys. The chief of psychiatry at the hospital was very aware that there was an ethical issue in the mix as well. And he wrote in the patient record, quote, I think we have to be careful not to be too much swayed by our eagerness to carry out a kidney transplant successfully for the first time, i.e. to succeed in having it take permanently. It seems to me, furthermore, that the potential recipient's mental state is a subsidiary issue. 
the important question would seem to be whether we, as physicians, have the right to put the healthy twin under the pressure of being asked whether he is willing to make this sacrifice. I do not feel that we have this right in view of the potential danger to the healthy twin, as well as the uncertainty of the outcome for this patient. But even as this issue of ethics was being really carefully and thoughtfully examined during November of 1954, time was kind of ushering things along because Richard's health was rapidly declining. And so the longer the medical team wrestled with their ideology and the philosophy behind asking a healthy man to give up part of his body to save his brother, the worse Richard's chances got. Ronald, after thinking it through, eventually decided that he was, in fact, willing to donate one of his kidneys to his brother. Everything seemed to be going along just fine, but at the last minute, it was actually Richard who tried to put a stop to things. The night before the surgery was to take place, he sent a note to his brother telling him to go home. But Ronald replied with a note of his own and said simply, I am here and I am going to stay. Before the operation with the Herrick brothers, there was a test run of the entire procedure on December 20th on a fresh cadaver. And once this rehearsal was completed, the live procedure was scheduled. So on December 23rd, at 8.15 a.m., the operation began. The donor team was in one operating room, and the recipient team was in the adjacent operating room. The Brigham Kidney Transplant Team was comprised of Drs. John P. Merrill, who was head of nephrology, J. Hartwell Harrison, chief of urology, Gustav Damon, pathologist-in-chief, and Joseph E. Murray. The severed healthy kidney was transferred from the donor operating room to the recipient operating room at 9.35 a.m. The operation was completed at 11.15. As clamps were removed and blood flow was restored to the transplanted organ, and urinary flow began immediately. It is considered the first successful organ transplant. Richard lived for eight years after this surgery, and in that time, he actually got married to one of the nurses that he met in the recovery room, and the couple had two children. His brother Ronald lived to the age of 79. He died in 2010, 56 years after donating his kidney to his brother and making history in the process. Joseph E. Murray was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1990. He died in late 2012 at the age of 93. Today, more than 30,000 organ transplants are performed in the United States each year, and more than half of those are kidney transplants. Thanks for today's episode goes to Eves Jeffcoat, who worked on research for this, Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their work on the audio for the episode, and uh, you should subscribe to This Day in History class, which you can do on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tomorrow, we're going to delve into the story behind one of the standard songs of Christmas. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro series has all of those and the Roku streaming experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. 
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing Watson X Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. Hey y'all, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, where we uncover a new layer of history every day. The day was December 23rd, 1972. 72 days after Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 crashed into the Andes, the final survivors were rescued. On October 12, 1972, a twin turboprop Fairchild FH-227 left Carrasco International Airport in Montevideo and was headed to Santiago. There were 40 passengers and five crew members on the flight, which was carrying a Uruguayan rugby team that was set to play a match in the Chilean capital. Julio Cesar Ferradas was the commander on the flight, and Dante Hector Lagurada was the co-pilot. The trip would take them over the Andes Mountains, which could be a difficult area to traverse. And that day, the weather was poor over the Andes, so the flight had to stop in Mendoza, Argentina. The plane left Mendoza the next day, though the weather was still not ideal. Ferradas had experience flying over the Andes, but the Fairchild plane could only ascend so high. The flight had to go over a pass with lower peaks called the Planchon Pass. Co-pilot Lagrada was flying the plane as Colonel Ferraras trained him. Lagrada directed the plane toward Malarwe on the way to Planchon Pass. But by the time the flight had reached the pass, cloud cover had not lifted. At 3.21 p.m., Lagrada radioed the Santiago airport and told them he was flying over Planchon and would be at the Chilean town Curico soon. Minutes later, they said they had reached Curico, and air traffic control authorized them to descend. The plane descended, but as it went into the clouds, it started shaking and soon hit a strong downward air current. The plane dropped thousands of feet, and soon the plane crashed into the mountain, ripping off a wing and separating the tail and a rear portion of the fuselage from the plane. Several passengers died in the collision. Some people who survived and crash-landed began helping passengers who were hurt. Others had lost consciousness. Over the next several days, more passengers died. Search and rescue teams were sent out to the Andes not long after the plane went missing. But rescuers did not know exactly where the plane crashed, and it was hard to see the downed plane in the snow. Eight days after it began, the official search was called off. The passengers managed to find a radio and discovered that the search had ended. They were discouraged, but passenger Gustavo Nikolic told people that they would make it out on their own. They did what they could to survive, 
they used the fuselage as a shelter, and they made sun visors from the plane into sunglasses to prevent snow blindness. All the while, more passengers died. Food was scarce, so the survivors decided to begin eating the dead to stay alive. And on October 29th, tragedy struck again when an avalanche buried the fuselage and killed more people. So the survivors decided they would hike out of the Andes to search for help. Nando Perrado and Roberto Canessa eventually ran into a few men, one of whom was Sergio Catalan. Catalan gave them food and then told officials that survivors were still in the mountains. The two of them were rescued by helicopter on December 21st, and by the 23rd, all the survivors were rescued. 16 people survived the disaster. The press jumped on the story of the crash, and in the following years, books, films, and TV shows recounted the disaster. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you've seen any good history memes lately, you can send them to us on social media at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Or if you are so inclined, you can send us a message at this day at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you same place tomorrow. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcast. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that strives to know at least a little bit more about history every day. I'm Gabe Lussier, and in this episode, we're talking about a strange incident in the often tragic life of Impressionist painter Vincent van Gogh. The topic hinges on an instance of self-harm, which some listeners may find disturbing. If that's you, maybe give this episode a pass or circle back when you feel better prepared. The day was December 23rd, 1888. 
Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh mutilated his own left ear with a razor blade while living in Arles, France. The most widely accepted account is that Van Gogh experienced a manic episode after getting in an argument with his fellow artist and housemate, Paul Gauguin. Historians have discussed the nature of Van Gogh's unstable mental health for over a century, but with little evidence to go on, they haven't come to a firm conclusion. What we know for certain is that the artist wrestled with severe depression, that he consumed paint and other chemicals, and that he sometimes saw and heard things that weren't really there. Today, Vincent Willem van Gogh is one of the most popular artists of all time, and his paintings, now worth millions, are on display at the finest museums throughout the world. Unfortunately, as is often the case, the artist never saw any of that success in his lifetime. He sold very few of his works and largely depended on his younger brother, Theo, for financial support. Van Gogh decided to be an artist in 1880 at the age of 27. Prior to that, he had worked as an art dealer for a gallery and as a preacher, ministering to impoverished miners in Belgium. In 1881, he received painting and drawing lessons from his uncle, an accomplished artist named Anton Mauve. Van Gogh's early work drew inspiration from his experiences with the peasant families he had met in the mining village. As a result, the paintings from this period tend to be darker toned and more somber than the bright, vivid scenes that appear in his most famous works. In 1886, Van Gogh moved to Paris, where he began developing his well-known style. The hectic life of a modern city inspired the artist to experiment with bright colors and short brush strokes, as well as more upbeat subjects like cafes and floral still lifes. Artistically, Van Gogh was making great strides, but financially, he remained dependent on his brother Theo, who worked in Paris as the manager of an art gallery. After two years there, the bustle of city life and its expense got to be too much for Van Gogh. He longed for a change of scenery, so in February of 1888, he boarded a train and traveled to Arles, a small town in the south of France. Van Gogh rented several rooms in a big yellow house and quickly fell in love with his new surroundings. He painted scenes of the countryside, like blossoming orchards and field workers gathering the harvest, as well as vibrant still lifes, including his famous Sunflower series. His style became lighter and more expressive, a drastic change from the somber tones of his early work. Life in Arles not only improved Van Gogh's productivity, but his ambition as well. He wrote to Theo about his desire to establish what he called a studio of the South. The idea was basically to set up an artist's colony in Arles, where he and others could live and produce work for Theo to sell in Paris. Theo was supportive of his brother's idea, and even arranged for Paul Gauguin to travel to Arles as a kind of test run for the colony. Gauguin arrived in late October of 1888, and things started out pretty well. He and Van Gogh worked enthusiastically and even painted each other's portraits. 
Still, the men had very different views on art, which often led to heated arguments. The growing tension came to a head on December 23rd, when Van Gogh threatened his friend with a razor before ultimately turning it on himself. The facts of the ear incident have become muddled over time. Alternate accounts exist for virtually every detail of the story, including why Van Gogh chopped off his ear in the first place, how much of it he actually chopped off, and what he did with it afterward. Let's take those one at a time, starting with the artist's motive. Most accounts suggest Van Gogh's mania was triggered by Paul Gauguin threatening to leave the house in Arles. However, some Van Gogh experts have recently suggested that the artist took a razor to his ear after learning that his brother Theo had gotten engaged. The presumption is that Van Gogh would have felt threatened by his brother's relationship, perhaps fearing that marriage would leave Theo with less time, energy, and money to devote to Van Gogh's projects. Historians previously thought that the artist only learned of the marriage after he cut his ear. However, new evidence suggests that he actually heard the news on the same day that he fought with Gauguin and then mutilated his ear. According to author and Van Gogh specialist Martin Bailey, quote, It was fear that pulled the trigger and led to the breakdown. Fear of being abandoned in both an emotional and financial way. As for the severity of the wound, some say just the lower earlobe was severed, while others insist it was almost the entire appendage. Van Gogh later documented the ordeal in a pair of self-portraits, but in both of them his ear is bandaged, so it's hard to tell how much is missing. Other evidence is just as ambiguous. For instance, a letter written by the doctor who first treated the wound contained a sketch showing the ear had been completely detached. However, a different doctor who tended to Van Gogh two years later also made a sketch of the ear, and his showed that just the earlobe had been severed. Why the medical drawings are so different is one of the many mysteries that still surrounds the event. Lastly, let's look at what happened to the ear itself. According to early reports, later that evening, Van Gogh wrapped his severed ear in newspaper, walked to a brothel in the nearby Red Light District, and presented it to a sex worker named Rachel. Remarkably, the only part of that story that's been questioned is the name and occupation of the poor girl who got stuck with the ear. According to research by Bernadette Murphy, another author and Van Gogh scholar, the unlucky recipient was actually an 18-year-old girl named Gabrielle Berletier, who worked at the brothel as a maid. Murphy also found evidence that the girl worked a second job at a cafe where Van Gogh frequently hung out. This suggests that he didn't give her his ear by chance, though any intended significance, as well as what she did with it, remain unknown. The morning after the incident, Van Gogh was admitted to the local hospital, where he remained for about two weeks. When he was discharged in January of 1889, the artist had little recollection of cutting his ear. He resumed painting, but in the months that followed, his mood fluctuated wildly. Fearing another mental crisis, Van Gogh decided to voluntarily admit himself to a psychiatric hospital in May. 
He continued painting throughout his one-year stay, and despite his illness, he produced some of his most famous works during this time, including Irises and Starry Night. In May of 1890, Van Gogh left the mental hospital and moved to an artist's village near Paris. He found peace there for a time, but by mid-July, his illness and concern for the future became too much for him to bear. On July 27th, he shot himself in a wheat field and died two days later at the age of 37. The artist left behind a large body of work, more than 850 paintings and nearly 1,300 drawings. His genius was recognized posthumously, and today he's remembered not only as the troubled man who cut off his ear, but as one of the most gifted artists the world has ever known. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can write to us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcast. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriman, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com.